So I'm going to be uh, reading uh, this morning from the very last chapter of the book of Acts. So if you have your iPhones or your Bibles, if you could turn to that with me. And before I read that, uh, before I read that, my wife and I really enjoy going for long walks together in the long Bozeman evenings uh, during the summer. And a while back, we were walking along Cottonwood. If you know where Cottonwood uh, dead ends on the north side of Durston, there's a dead end there. We were just walking down, and suddenly uh, we began to hear sirens. And it sounded like surround sound, like there were sirens coming from all over the valley. And uh, to our surprise, uh, they all converged right where we were walking, probably within about 100 feet. And so law enforcement was there, uh, ambulances were there, fire trucks. And of course, all the commotion brought people uh, out of their homes. And so as I was walking by, I asked one of the, the neighbors there, I just said, you know, what's, what's going on? And he said, he said, well, he said, I was sitting on my front porch having a beer, and this guy on a motorcycle uh, just zoomed by me about 70 miles per hour. And he said, I got up out of my chair because I wanted to give him the finger on the way back. Right? It's a dead end. And he said, but here's the thing, he didn't come back. Okay? He shot right through the obstacles there at the, uh, at the end of the road, right through the reflector signs, and he just kind of launched airborne off the end of Cottonwood and disappeared into that farmer's field there. And then he turned and looked at me, and I could smell the alcohol on his breath, and he said, uh, so that was not what I expected, kind of a surprise ending, okay? And then I asked, well, how about the guy? Is he okay? And he said, well, like I said, I don't know. He just disappeared. I don't know if he's okay, right? Kind of a surprise ending, and it's not what I expected. And I think that is a great way of capturing the ending of the book of Acts, it's kind of a surprise ending, and it's not what you would expect. Because you've been following Paul, and you know that God has promised that he is going to talk about Jesus in front of Caesar. He's going to be put on trial there in Rome. But then it ends, and we never figure out what happens here. Does he get out? Is he okay? You know, is the guy just like with that motorcyclist? Was he okay? Well, we don't know. Well... Same thing with Paul. We don't know how it all turns out in the end. And so with that in mind then, what I want to do is, is just read this. And uh, in fact, one, one scholar, a New Testament scholar says, he said, this has got to be the strangest ending of any biblical book. The strangest ending of any biblical book. So I want to read that ending for you right now. I'm going to start in verse 17. I'm just going to go to the very end. Then after that, I want to ask three questions of this text. Uh, verse 17. Three days later, he, that's Paul, called together the local Jewish leaders. He's in Rome now. When they assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people, or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and, and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. 
The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, we have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of, none of our people who have come from there have reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God. And from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made his final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will, ev you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seen, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their ears, hear, see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So, in essence here, if you, probably most of you know the story of Acts, Dr. Luke describes how Paul, this murderer-turned-missionary, has appealed his case to the Roman emperor, which was his right as a Roman citizen. And God had promised Paul that he would proclaim the gospel to Caesar. And now he's arrived in Rome, and throughout this entire thing, Dr. Luke has been our tour guide, Dr. Luke. In fact, I remember I always refer to Dr. Luke as doctor in my sermons, and my 13-year-old stuck, I've got four teenagers now, and and my 13-year-old stuck her head in my office the other day and said, Dad, why do you always call a Luke a doctor? What kind of a doctor is he? All right. And my wife had heard this from the kitchen, and she yelled out, radiologist, for sure, right? The radiologist. And I said, why did you say that? And well, she said, he has an uncanny ability to x-ray the human condition and diagnose our need for Jesus. Okay, and that's what we see that Dr. Luke does right here. He has an uncanny ability to x-ray our human condition and di diagnose our need for Jesus. So I want to ask just three questions here. Three questions. Number one, just working through this text. In verses 17 through 24, why does Dr. Luke end with Paul in chains? It's kind of anticlimactic, wouldn't you agree? Why does Dr. Luke end with Paul in chains, verses 17 through 24? Number two, why does Luke end by quoting Isaiah there in verses 25 through 28? It's kind of obscure, kind of obscure. And then finally, why does Dr. Luke end with a cliffhanger? Why does he leave us hanging? 
verses 29 through 31. It's a little bit frustrating, a little bit frustrating. So let's just go, let's go work through that and kind of work through the passage. So first of all, why does Luke, why does Dr. Luke end with Paul in chains? That's verses 17 through 24. Now, if you read 17 through 24, you go back through there. uh, Paul is trying to explain uh, to the Jews, to his people, the people he loves, why he's in chains. He's trying to give a kind of a reason for that. And in verses 17 through 20, he gives a big picture overview of his story and how he got to Rome. How he'd been arrested and handed over to the Romans, even though he had, in verse 17, it says he had really done nothing. Verse 17 there. Or verse 18, he says, I am not guilty. Or today we might say he's a victim. You know, and it, in some sense, he's innocent. From the time that uh, Paul really first came on the scene in chapter 17 in the book of Acts, uh, Paul's story was a story of suffering. And we might say even innocent suffering. It was a story of rejection, even, of suffering. So he was publicly uh, beaten, if you remember that, without a trial. He was attacked by mobs to the point of death. I think you're probably familiar with the story. He was stoned to death and left for dead. In the book of Acts, he's shipwrecked. And I think the important point to emphasize here is that this wasn't just physical abuse. Okay, physical abuse... Um, if you've ever been on the receiving of that end of that, that's tough enough. Um, but it was also involved just emotional and relational abuse. I mean, he was slandered by his own people, Paul was. He was not only slandered by his own people, but he was uh, kind of left, left to, um, he was just almost betrayed by the people in, in Jerusalem, by the, even by the Christians in Jerusalem, and even abandoned by his good friends, if you remember how Mark ditches him and takes off. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, as Paul looks back on this and he says, look, I was under great pressure far beyond my ability to endure so that we despaired of life itself. Great pressure to the point where he despaired of life itself, if you think about that. Now, I know as a pastor that connects with me um, because if I can... I know this is rather serious, uh, but as I talk with people in my congregation, I know that, in fact, I'm just shocked at the number of people that have been through uh, physical or emotional uh, abuse, or maybe sometimes verbal abuse, and just seeing the fallout from that, uh, PTSD, uh, levels of anxiety, uh, even panic attacks. And maybe some of you can, you, can, you can identify at some level with that. Either you've been physically or sexually assaulted or you've been abused emotionally or relationally. And so when you, when you read uh, Paul's story, there's a, lot, there's a number of points of connection there. A number of points of connection. In fact, I was just uh, reading a while back an article. Uh, this was uh, in the news uh, in, I think it was 2000, late 2015, when a young woman was assaulted on the campus of Stanford. I don't know if you remember that in the news, national news. And at the sentencing, she actually read a letter uh, to her assailant. And I just want to read just parts of that. Uh, there's other parts I don't think I could actually make it through and, and maintain my composure. But at one point, she says, and she's addressing her assailant, Uh, She said, I wanted to take off my body, 
like a jacket and leave it at the hospital with everything else. So she's becoming more disconnected from her body. And then she said, at work, I excused myself to cry in the stairwells. And I can tell you all the best places in that building to cry where no one can hear you. She said, I can't sleep alone at night without having a light on like a five-year-old because I have nightmares of being touched where I cannot wake up. The way I have broken down sobbing uncontrollably. If I'm watching a movie uh, where a woman is harmed. Right? So here is a young woman describing just the fallout of that kind of abuse and suffering in her life. I mean, it's a fallout not just in her relationship to her body, but at work, even the way she sleeps at night, uh, even the way she watches uh, movies, you know, Netflix, and just the fallout that she has to work through every day. Now, Paul, so he's, he's connecting, he's sharing, he's given a reason for the suffering here that he's been through. And then in verse 23, he begins, he says, he shares about Jesus all day long. It says, from morning till evening. And we ask, okay, what's the connection here? Wait a minute, you're talking about your suffering, now you're talking about Jesus. What's the connection between those two? Well, that's one of the themes that Dr. Luke hits on in the book of Acts. And he, that's why he wraps it up the way he does is Jesus suffered. Jesus experienced that physical abuse, that emotional abuse, that relational abuse. And that's one of the themes we see in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 3, chapter 17, chapter 26, all throughout. Dr. Luke is reminding us it's not just Paul who suffered, uh, but it's Jesus who suffers. And so what that means then as a pastor, what it means for all of us here in this room, is that we have a Savior, and I want to say this very carefully, who doesn't just sympathize. And we have a Savior who doesn't just sympathize. We also have a Savior who identifies. Not just sympathize, but identifies and, you know, what's, and there's a world of difference between those two things. Because to sympathize, if I sympathize with you, I say, wow, that's too bad. I can't imagine how you must feel. Okay, I can't imagine how you must feel. That's to sympathize with someone. But to identify is to say, that's bad, and I know exactly how you feel. I can identify, right? There's a difference between sympathize and identify. So it's the difference between saying, I'm sorry for you, right? and I'm there with you. I'm there with you. So the answer to that first question, why does Luke end with Paul in chains? Well, it's really to emphasize suffering. Because that suffering, that theme that's gone throughout the book of Acts, it leads us right to the person of Jesus. He suffered. He doesn't just feel sorry for us. He's there with us. So why does Dr. Luke end with Paul in chains? Well, one word we might say, suffering. And that leads us to Jesus. But then number two, okay, why does Dr. Luke end by quoting Isaiah? If you look there, uh, he spends quite a bit of time quoting uh, verse, in verse 26, verse 27. He's there quoting Isaiah. And 
This is from Isaiah chapter 6, uh, verses 9 and 10. And to my knowledge, to my knowledge, this is the only Old Testament text that's quoted in every single one of the Gospels and in the book of Acts. Only Old Testament text to be quoted in every single one of the Gospels okay, and uh, here in the book of Acts. And so it's important. It's, it must be really important. But why does Paul mention it here? Well, I would suggest that in the flow here that this passage gives us insight, a little window into how Paul is processing his suffering. He's just described his suffering. Okay, why he's been in chains right now. Now, this, this quote gives us a little bit of insight into how he thinks about this and how he processes his suffering. So if you go back, he's reminding us here that, okay, Isaiah, he prophesied about 800 years ago. Isaiah predicted exactly what was happening to Paul and the Jews, how the Jews of his time would reject the gospel, how they, in his words, they're, they're, they have closed their eyes there in verse 27. And, and Paul reminds the Jews, look, this is something that Isaiah predicted 800 years ago. So there's no sense in which God's plans are being thwarted, that somehow God has lost control of the situation. Right? His plans are being executed exactly as he wants them to be. But I think there's something even deeper. He, he gives this quote, and then in verse 28, I'll read that again. Therefore, he says, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. Now, did you catch that? He says, therefore, in other words, the Jews of my time have rejected Jesus for the most part. Therefore, again, the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles. Now, this also summarizes one of the main points and the main themes in the book of Acts, and that is how the gospel goes to the Gentiles. And how does it go to the Gentiles? Well, it goes because many of the Jews of Paul's time rejected the gospel. So there's some sense in which, and I want to, I want to be careful about this, but there's some sense in which Acts 28, 28, if you're a Gentile, like I am, I'm a Gentile, this is our verse. The gospel came to us because of what's happening right here in this passage. The gospel goes, goes global, how did this happen? Well, the Jews had to reject it first. So we might say, uh, we Gentiles are here today because of the Jews of Paul's time rejected the gospel and abused Paul. And he endured a lot of suffering because of that. So we might even say then that God uses or God brings a great salvation from Paul's suffering. In other words, for Paul, it was an immense amount of suffering, but for us, it's a salvation. God is able to bring a salvation from this great suffering. So Paul's point here is that God can take this suffering, this victimization, and even the sinful rebellion that caused it, and uh, turn it into a great salvation. We might just say in three words, a suffering into Salvation. Boy, that is, that's a great word for us as believers to be able to share. That's good news. 
It's really good news. Now, people, as a pastor, uh, people will often ask me, they will say, well, look, if there's a God, why is there so much evil? You've probably heard that before. That maybe you've wondered that. And certainly, uh, this points us, it doesn't give us the answer, but it certainly points us in the right direction. Now, why is there evil? Well, God can show that God can show us that he has the power to take even evil and use that for a great salvation. That's how powerful he is. Now, maybe just to kind of uh, drive this home, I can give an illustration. There was a news story early in, I think it was January of this year, 2018, about a massive humpback whale. 50,000-pound whale, 50,000-pound humpback whale who began pushing around a swimmer who was snorkeling in the, in the Pacific. I'll just read part of the article. Uh, this whale, this 50,000-pound humpback whale began pushing around Nan Hauser, who's 63, as she was snorkeling. Uh, the pictures show how this massive sea creature pushed this whale biologist with its head and then tucked her under its pectoral fin and even at one point lifted her out of the water. The whale lifted her out of the water on its um, fin. And Hauser, Nan Hauser, who lives in the Cook Islands, said, and I quote, I wasn't sure what the whale was up to when he approached me, and it didn't stop pushing me around for over 10 minutes. A terrifying experience, right? Despite my trepidations, he said, I tried to stay calm and figure out how to get away from him. Well, um, the, the biologist, uh, a nearby research vessel, her team was watching all of this, and they were actually filming it with a drone at the time, and they actually stopped their filming because uh, they didn't want to film her death. And that's how serious it really was. And I think, you know, as I read that article, I was thinking, you know, that's how sometimes I think we feel. As I'm talking with people in my office, uh, maybe you feel this way. That's how, how sometimes we feel when we suffer, when we get angry at God. And we feel like we're being pushed around by this really big bully. Being pushed around by this really big bully. And we might say, you know, God, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this to me? Why are you making me suffer like this? And, and just like Nan said in the article, all we want to do is just get away from him. And I see that over and over again. Um, people will say, look, I just don't want to read my Bible anymore. And when you suffer, sometimes I'll hear people say, I, I don't even want to be around my Christian friends anymore. And I certainly don't want to go hear the pastor preaching about God's grace on Sunday morning. Right? I just want to get away from it. But what was interesting here is that when she finally climbed up, uh, she, up on her vessel, up on the ship, uh, they saw a 15-foot tiger shark. All right, now that's the kind of shark that attacked a surfer in Hawaii on New Year's, if you remember that. Okay. They saw a 15-foot tiger shark on the other side of the whale. And see, that then totally reinterpreted everything she just experienced. 
okay? That whale wasn't abusing me. That whale was trying to save me from a much greater threat. Okay, and that's exactly what that whale was doing. But that's not how she experienced it, right? So this points us back to Jesus because all throughout this book, uh, Luke presents Jesus as a victim. He's the one who uh, suffered innocently. And yet God takes his suffering and turns it into a global salvation. He even takes the, uh, the sinful rebellion that causes his suffering and turns it into a salvation. So once again, God turns suffering into salvation. So here is God. He takes the worst evil, okay, the, the worst evil ever committed on this planet. And that's the death of Jesus Christ, right? The worst evil ever committed on this planet. And he takes that and uses it to work a great salvation. And Paul is saying, look, that's, that is what God is not only doing in Jesus Christ, but Paul says, that's what he's doing in my life. This suffering, you know what? Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. So why does Luke end by quoting Isaiah? Well, he might say in one word, salvation. That God specializes in taking that suffering and turning it to salvation. Now, then finally, finally, last question, why does Luke end with a cliffhanger in verses 29 through 31? And he really does. Okay, in verse 30, we see that he's there in a rented house, and he welcomes all who come to see him. That's probably when he wrote the prison epistles, we believe, like Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. And, uh, then, but then suddenly, the, the action kind of cuts off. And we're like, oh, well, well, wait a minute, Dr. Luke, you can't stop now. We want to know, we want to know about Paul's trial before Caesar. We want to know, does, does Paul walk? Does he go to prison? What happens? And Dr. Luke just leaves us hanging. He's brought us all this way, and then he leaves us. It's almost like a dangling ending. It just begs for more, like all these loose ends that he just leaves with us. Will Paul get out of prison? Will the church continue to grow? It's kind of like watching a, it's watching a movie and, uh, you know, the DVD's scratched, you know, and you can't watch it anymore. Or your internet shuts down, you know, as you're watching Netflix or something. You're like, you're left hanging. But what's, what uh, Dr. Luke does emphasize, though, in verse 28, which I just read, that God's salvation is going to go to the Gentiles. So there's a sense in which there's a movement here starting. Okay, so we see the movement, a movement making, I'm just going to call it. But then in verse 31, I'll read that. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness. So he's going to take a risk. He's going to go forward. So I'm just going to call that risk taking. So there's movement making, there's risk taking. And then finally, the last couple of words, and without hindrance. In other words, every barrier is going to be broken. I love the fact that Dr. Luke ends the book of Acts with that one word, unhindered. No more barriers, right? Unhindered. And it's kind of a dramatic phrase. So you put those three together, you get movement-making, barrier-breaking, right? Movement-making, uh, barrier-breaking. And then he ends it with unhindered. That's a dramatic phrase, a pregnant term. 
And it's, again, it's not what you would expect. It's not what I would expect. Because he says he preached the gospel unhindered. But he's a prisoner in chains. He's a prisoner in chains, and yet he's unhindered. And as if Dr. Luke here is saying, look, Paul, Paul may be unhindered. Or Paul may be hindered. He may be in chains, but the gospel is not. Paul may be in chains, but you know what? Not the gospel. Paul may be hindered, but not the gospel. So whatever hindrance you can think of, anything that can hinder the spread of the gospel, God's going to conquer it all. His purposes are going to prevail. And so Dr. Luke here ends on this note of victory. So this really highlights God's, the power of God's grace here. The power of God's grace. So at the end of the book, it's absolutely, totally 100% consistent with this theme that he's been developing along this risk-taking, barrier-breaking, movement-making grace of Jesus. That's really the theme of the book. So why end with a cliffhanger? Well, one, it highlights the power of God's grace. But I think there's even something else going on here. I think also Dr. Luke is inviting us into the action. Because one scholar says Acts is intentionally open-ended. He's inviting our participation in the mission. So it's almost like uh, the story is going to continue. Right? It's an open door through which we, in our day, have to pass. And so it's like this story now, this story right here kind of becomes our story. Right? And in some sense, it draws us in. So maybe you can look at it this way. I'll give another illustration uh, from... My, my oldest is 20 years old. Uh, he w will work up at Bridger, at Bridger Bowl during the ski season. He works in the, the ticket office up there. And, uh, and he, he loves working up there, but he says that uh, skiers, some of the skiers up there, uh, think that they're the exception to every rule. And so if, you, if you've ever been up to Bridger, you can, can't get half-day tickets until 1230. Right? You, some of you probably know that. You can't. You can't get your half-day ticket till after 12.30, but you know, some of the skiers will make up these stories because they're the special person who should get their ticket before 12.30, right? But one time he had someone come up to the window, and this was New Year's Day this past year, and uh, it was a man and his daughter, and they finally got up to the ticket window, and the man pulled out his credit card uh, to pay for the day pass. And my son Bruce took the card and said, you know, I'm sorry, we don't take American Express. And the man got just really, really flustered. And he said, look, he said, you've got to understand my situation. This is the only day that I have to ski with my daughter. Okay, I was up here the other day and my wallet was stolen. So I've had to replace all my cards, had to reorder all of them, and this is the only card that I've received so far, so this, I don't know what to do. This is the only day I have to ski with my daughter. And so Bruce, my son, he said, well, look, he said, I'm working my way through college. <laughs> he said, I'm dirt poor. So that's why I'm working New Year's Day and everyone else's scheme, okay? But Bruce took out his credit card 
And he said, you know what, if you don't find Jeff Ablin, you know, runs the ticket office up there, and give him cash to pay me back, he says, I'm going to eat the price of these tickets. I'm going to eat the price of these tickets. And the man looked at him and agreed. And the man said, well, do you want to write down my name? And my son Bruce uh, looked at him and said, well, he said, can I trust you? Can I trust you? And again, that's the real question, right? Can I trust him? It's the real question. And the man looked at him and said, yes, you can. I'll pay you back. All right, so in other words, imagine this situation. Bruce is sitting there all day. He's taking people's money. Okay, they're the ones who have to make the choices. They commit. They bring the money to the table, right? That's how it works when you're in the ticket office. But now suddenly, in an instant, the tables are flipped. They're the ones making the choices. They're the ones bringing the cash. Now Bruce has got to make the choice. He's got to bring money to the table. Surprise, the tables have turned. Now Bruce has to make the choice. He's got to decide if he's going to put skin in the game. Okay, if I can use that phrase, skin in the game. And that's exactly what happens in the book of Acts. You're going along and you're watching other people. They have to make the choices. They have to commit. And then suddenly, boom, at the very end, it's turned. The tables are turned. And you've got to decide, oh, now I've got to decide. I'm the one who has to make the choice. Okay? We've seen the risk-taking, barrier-breaking, movement-making grace of Jesus. And now, surprise, the tables are turned. And like Bruce, now we've got to make the choice. Will we commit? Or will we put skin in the game? If I can use that phrase, skin in the game. And just like Bruce, the real question for him was, can I trust this person? That's the real question. And that's the real question for all of us. Can we trust Jesus? And can we really trust him? Will he really be there for us? Even when we're suffering, even when we're hurt, will he be there? Do I really trust this person? Well, see, the cross has a gigantic answer to that. You can trust Jesus because he has already put skin in the game, literally. Okay, Jesus has already said, you can trust me and I'll give my life for you. He's got skin in the game. So then why does Luke end with Paul in chains? Well, we might say it's suffering or the victimization. And it points to the victimization of Jesus. Why does Luke end by quoting Isaiah? Well, it was salvation, salvation through Jesus. He takes that suffering and turns it into salvation. Why does Luke end with a cliffhanger? It's an invitation. It's an invitation from Jesus. It's his invitation to you. Will you commit and do you trust him? It's two days later that um, Justin McGowan, who's in our college and career group, 
uh, he walked up and, and told Bruce and I, he said, you know, I was up at Bridger the other day and this guy just came up to me, gave me a bunch of cash and said, give it to Bruce. Right? So whoever that guy was, he made good on his promises. And I want you to know that God is going to make good on all his promises uh, to each of you. Okay, that is the good news. And because of that, you can trust him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, this morning, we just rejoice that you are always faithful to all your promises, to all your people all the time. And Lord, because of that, we pray that we would trust you. Lord, even with those deep, dark secrets, even with those very deep hurts, and the suffering that we sometimes endure. Lord, just knowing that you are a God who not only sympathizes, but you identify with us. You're there with us. Uh, Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.